The joys of putting in new soundboards with all sorts of doodads and buttons and stuff is every once in a while you touch one of those and you didn't know you touched one of those and it messes everything up and uh, fortunately we noticed it before we started tearing wires apart in the back. So here we are, we made it, life is good. How's everybody doing? Good, that's great to hear. Well, we are going to pick up, let me move this, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. As we've been talking about this series, The Alternate Reality, we're beginning to see things happening uh, in the country, which has nothing to do with us necessarily, but more so with things that God is doing. And as we begin to focus our attention on the spiritual aspect of our lives, the reality of, and this is where, the, the, as a born-again believer, spirit-filled believer, that we have to come to this understanding that we are in a world that we are not a part of. And we have to turn our eyes on Jesus. You know, we've got all these great songs that we've sung for most of us our entire lives, and yet we don't do them. We just sing them. And some of us sing them better than others. Some of you sing it better than others. Let's put it that way, right? But, but the reality is, is that we've got to focus our attention on the things that matter to God. And being in a world that we are not part of is complicated. Because it's all around us. If you've ever had to work in a group setting, go back to maybe your high school or your college days, where there's always certain people in those groups. You've got the one who's like, does everything. And then you've got the others who watch them do and we all end up with the same outcome, right? Regardless of our involvement or how, how much of a, a, a we bring to the table, we get the same grade. And so the outcome is affected by the group as a whole, but it's really driven by the individuals that make a part of that group. Am I talking in circles, y'all, with me this morning? Is it too early? We need more coffee? I think we've got a few donuts left. Y'all, help yourself. Okay, good. So the thing is, is that we are now, we, we've got to focus our attention through the lens of which God has said. And that always comes back to the Scriptures. What does he say? We know nothing about God, his character, his ability, his will. We don't know anything outside of the pages of Scripture. If you alleviate or eliminate altogether the pages of Scripture, everything that you know about God and that you believe about God is nothing more than opinions. And opinions matter. They're not without meaning, but they are not grounded in reality if they are not grounded in truth. And the alternate reality that you and I live in is one of which that, what did God say? Too much today we spend our efforts and our time saying, God, I know that's what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. That is why we are called the bride of Christ. Thank you, somebody. Thank you for keeping up. Okay, it's going to be a rough one, guys. Y'all don't keep up better than this. It's going to be a long day for you guys, I promise. But here's the deal. When we begin to look at things through the lens of which God has spoken, what He has said, we can begin to celebrate what He's doing. And there are things happening around our country today. Man, so many of us have been praying for revival for years. We haven't seen a good one in a long time. And then we've got what's going on at Asbury. And, and it's amazing. You're seeing young people, night and day, crying out to God, worshiping God, all of this other stuff. And guess what that brings out? Haters. They're out in full force. That's not a real revival. Well, what is? Who determines that? All I know is I got young people there that are crying out to God, repenting, giving their lives to Christ. Call it whatever you want. I don't care. Don't call it a revival. Let's just see more of it. I'm going to tell you guys a story. I haven't gotten all the details of this, but I have referenced this individual. So there was a young man that I grew up with. And... Um, we were really, really good friends, and uh, he was adopted, had kind of a rough upbringing uh, in the early days, and uh, somewhat rebellious, wasn't a 
horribly misbehaved child, but just kind of spunky and, and whatnot. And uh, we were really good friends. And uh, he had all sorts of stories telling us growing up. And he had me absolutely convinced that his parents were about the most evil people on the planet. And uh, then he invited me to stay the night at his house. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, I don't know if I want to do this. We were probably seventh or eighth grade at this point. So I went over there. And you know what I found out? His parents were about the nicest people I ever met. In fact, I was trying to figure out how I got adopted. Because they were way better than mine. Because they were giving me stuff. And feeding me well. And so I asked him about this. I said, man, what, what's with all this? He's like, yeah, that's just kind of a thing I tell people. Kind of attention-starved kid. You know, okay, fine. And, uh, but we grew up together. We had a lot of fun and stuff. And he is somebody from a young age that I would continually share the gospel with. Now, he went to church. But it was one of those churches where you just kind of, you go in, you fill the seat, you go home. And um, he got in a little bit of trouble in high school, but nothing serious and stuff. And, I mean, time after time, I, I just share the gospel with them to no avail. And then uh, when I was going to school down in Oklahoma, I, I get a phone call from an attorney, uh, started asking questions. He had been arrested for attempted murder. Yeah, I've told this story before. And they wanted to know if I'd be a character witness since I was his best friend growing up. And I just couldn't believe it because he was a lot of things, but that wasn't it. And without going into all the details, it was kind of a raw deal that was happening. But ultimately, he was involved and he went to prison, spent seven years in prison. And um, when he got out, uh, we kind of reconnected. He was living up in Omaha at that time. And uh, was, he had been married prior to this, and so his wife was with him, and she eventually divorced him. And then he eventually got remarried. This is wife number two. He's on to wife number three. I'm giving you the short, condensed version of this story. But he'd always kind of circled back, and he would come to be a part of my life. Uh, he reached out to me after that. At that point, I was, you know, I had businesses going. He came back down to Auburn, came to work for me part-time, was going to school, trying to get his life on track, still continuing to share the gospel, still continuing hitting roadblocks, and just praying for the guy, just trying to be a, a witness if I could to him in any way that I could. We spend a lot of time together. And um, eventually, wife number two had enough, moves on to wife number three. And it was shortly about, it was about seven years ago, he called me up one day, and he just was in a, in a rough spot, and he said, can we meet together? And I said, absolutely. And so I went over to Auburn, I met with him, we sat down in a park, and he was struggling with this idea of God. How could God be forgiving? How could God be merciful? Essentially, all Adolf Hitler had to do was, after all that he did, just say, I'm sorry. And I was just kind of like, well, I mean, kind of. Not exactly like that, you know. It's not like when your, your son looks at you and says, like, I'm sorry. It's not like that. And, and, and so he, he just was struggling with this idea. He's like, I've done so many bad things. He's like, I get why you can be forgiven. I get why God can love you. You're a good person. You do a lot of good things for people, but not me. And I said, let me tell you something, buddy. I'm not the standard of good. Because God is the standard of good. And none of us meet up. And I've been continuing to share the gospel with them. And after that day, I was just encouraged. I'm like, oh, Lord, please. Like, let this be the time. And unfortunately, it wasn't the time. And I just continued to reach out. And then he had some things happen in his life. And he got an opportunity to go to Louisiana. He lost his job, got an opportunity to go to Louisiana with his wife. They have kids together and whatnot. And so I helped him get down there because it was a job opportunity. And when he moved down there, he dropped social media. Changed. I haven't heard from them in five or six years until Saturday. His wife messaged me on Facebook and said, Hey, I just thought you would really like to know that Last Sunday, Ben got saved. 
and he's going to be baptized next Sunday. And I'm telling you this because for over 30 years, I beat my head against the wall with him. And I haven't even had a chance to talk to him myself, um, but I'm sitting at a basketball tournament and was very excited. But 30 years, guys, like over 30 years. And now I see somebody was able to get through to him. It's hard to not do backflips off of the bleacher stands when you get a message like that. All I knew is that would not end well, so I didn't do it. <laughs> because I'd probably have to buy a new gym floor. And I hear they're expensive. But the thing was, is like, oh man, God is, God is moving. And the thing, and I can't wait to talk to him, but I just, the thing that just kept coming back to me is like, we can't put God in this box. What is revival? Revival is people crawling out to God and saying, God, I need you. I am nothing without you. That's the reality. I can't tell you the other reality used to frustrate me. He used to frustrate me as an employee. He used to frustrate me as a friend. He used to drive me crazy with all the dumb financial decisions that man made. And guess where he'd always call when he needed a little help? Uh, just, ugh drive me crazy but now we're celebrating you see what happens is with this tenacity with this unwavering commonality that we have is that we just watch the Holy Spirit work in his time not ours see this is the reality is what else matters do you think the fact that my son got third place that day really mattered to me not a bit I was glad that he did actually I was sad that he did because it made us sit at the gym that much longer Lose your two games, let's go home. we got things to do. But see, it's that reality, that, that Christ-centric focus. And I know many of you are in the same boat. Again, I'm just telling you my stories. You all have your own. If you ever want to get up and share them, you're more than welcome to. But here's the thing. It's like, why do you continue to beat your head against the wall, continue to push, continue to tell, continue to love, continue to pray? Because sometimes there's a harvest. But the one thing that I knew is he could never stand in front of God and say, I didn't know. Because I told him time and time again. It's time to celebrate. You see, the Spirit of God is moving and will continue to move. But we don't have an understanding of what God does and how he does it. Because we've got this idea of like, well, we've got to put God in this box and it looks like this and we sing this hymn or we, we do this thing or we go to this place. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like the books of Acts, if you've ever read it, really read it, it's not clean. It's not clean at all. I mean, think about chapter 5. Dude sells some land, brings part of the money. Here's all. He gets struck dead. Why does Satan put it in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? That's not clean. It doesn't sound very loving or merciful or any of the other things that we have put on God. You see, we've got to get back. We've got to understand, what is this salvation? You see, why I'm celebrating is here's a man who told me for years that God couldn't forgive him. And he finally saw it. Finally saw it, right? See, what are we free from? This is what we're talking about. What does salvation mean? What does it mean to be born again, to be saved, all of this? We are free from ultimate death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the death. 
dead. For in, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all should be made alive. And Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We earn death. That's our wage because we sin. But the gift of God is something we didn't earn. It was given to us. We're saved from His wrath. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. In Romans 6, verse 17, it says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which you were delivered from. We're saved from wrath. We are free from sin. We are no longer underneath the bonds of this world because we are now a part of a civilization of heaven. We have access to God. We have peace with God. Nobody else did prior to that. All they could do was continually sacrifice. There was no peace. There was only work. When it talks about works versus grace, it's always a reference to the Mosaic Covenant. It was hinged upon the things that you did. And the New Covenant is hinged upon what Jesus has done. It's not a matter of human effort. It is a response to the new spirit and the drawing of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you know this, but a new engine in a car performs a lot better than an old engine in a car. And when we're born again, the Holy Spirit empowers us. He dwells us to live out this life free from sin. And when we renew our mind, we can walk unchained, unfeathered from anything that this world has to offer. We have to understand something. Is that we were not simply saved to get to heaven. Although that's how we talk. Heaven is not our ultimate destination. Because He's going to create a new heaven, a new earth. That is where we'll be. Eternity with God. Free from death. Free from pain. Free from sickness. And yo, we have to get that when we receive Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. See, that matters. Because you think about this. The power and presence of God is indwelt inside of us. God Himself is indwelt inside of us. Like, wrap your head around that, if you will. Creator of all the stuff in us. That matters. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promises faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What do we do? We have the boldness to enter where? The holiest. The holy of holies. The book of Hebrews, written to Hebrews. And all the different things that went along with that as they were reading this, like, whoa, 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 whoa. We enter what? The holiest of all? The holy of holies? Where the presence of God is? Where only the high priest could go? And if he screwed it up, he didn't get to come out? We can enter that? How? Through the veil. Well, what's the veil? It's his flesh. Now we have this access to the presence of God? Wouldn't that be sweet? Wouldn't that be powerful? But how do we know this? How do we move in hope without wavering? Because he 
who promised is faithful. It's all about him. I mean, you think about this. And I can see this happening. So you got a couple of young priests there. We're under the Mosaic Covenant. They're at the temple. Like, I double dog dare you. Go touch the ark. Make sure you like Facebook Live this sucker. It's going to be sweet. And they're like, no, 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 we can't do that. Like, that means death. He's like, no, 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 no. No, that's not. I mean, you probably won't die, but it'll be sweet. You'll be a legend. They'd be afraid. Smartly so. And it literally is talking about through the flesh of Jesus, we just walk right in. We have this peace with God. We have freedom with God. We have no fear with God. Nothing. Everything has changed. We don't fear death. We don't fear the economy. We don't fear the things around us because we are not a part of this world. Are we affected naturally through it? Of course we are. But our hope is in the one who made the promise. And if that is true, then there is nothing this world can throw at us that should shake us. It does shake us. It shouldn't shake us. We should not fear death. Ever. We should not fear persecution. Ever. We should not fear a bad economy, a bad president. They're all bad. We shouldn't fear any of this stuff. Because we should be so focused on the reality of who we are and who He made us to be that nothing else matters. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. So if we have a spirit of fear, who did it come from? It didn't come from God. He gave us a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a sound mind. I know some people try to prove that untrue. Just get on Facebook for a minute. You see, it's living this empowered life. Empowered with what? Empowered with the Holy Spirit. I read this last week, but I want to read it again. In Acts chapter 6, and I promise I'm going somewhere with all of this. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, this is talking about Stephen, who was one of the deacons. He was a no-name, a nobody. We don't even read much about him. But this. It says, Stephen, full of faith and power. Who said that? Luke said that. How did he know? Obviously, something was going on in Stephen's life that not only that Luke was willing to write this, but it got the attention of everybody else. He did great wonders and signs among the people. He wasn't one of the twelve. We have no idea if he was even there when Jesus was baptized. We don't know anything about this man. But he was full of faith and power. And he got the attention. He said, then there arose those who were called the synagogue of freedmen, the Cyrenians, Alexandria, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. They're arguing with him. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For we have not heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. So as they're accusing, what do they do? They set up false witnesses. They did what? They lied. They're breaking the commandments. They're accusing him of doing something that they themselves are doing because he's a threat against the system. It wasn't about God, it was about the system. Now, they were sincere in their beliefs. This system, if you follow it, will bring you to God. 
And there is an element of truth to that underneath the Mosaic Covenant. Should, should a person who is under that covenant fulfill the commandments, keep the commandments, and where they miss it, they sacrifice, there is a blessing. And when you break them, there's a cursing. That's the entirety of the Old Testament. However, these laws, the ones they are referencing, are not a part of that. These were those fence laws that they had set up. And so now they have to do exactly what the Pharisees before them had done, is they lie. They bribe the guards. Hey, tell them that the uh, disciples stole his body. Hey, that Lazarus guy that had died and then he probably smelled bad and then he's not dead anymore, we should kill him. He's a problem. There's a lot of thou shalt nots that they are breaking in all of this. Go to chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? He said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, even though, or not even enough to set his foot on. But even... Uh, when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they will shall come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. So he's giving them the history lesson. Laying this all out, how they got here. Verse 9, And the patriarchs became envious, sold Joseph in Egypt, but God was with him, and delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine, a great trouble, came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob had heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out uh, our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brother, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all the relatives to him. Seventy-five people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. The only piece of the land of promise that Abraham ever owned was the one that he bought. Verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dwelt, dealt uh, treacherously. With, the, uh, with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they may not live. At this time, Moses was born and was pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. And Moses uh, was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and in deeds. And now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him and was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame and a fire and bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for this place at which you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He 
brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Catch my breath. But he's laying out this history lesson. And you notice what he is saying. God used Moses, God used Abraham to get to this point, and he's making it about him and what God is doing. Look at verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From your brethren, him you shall bear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And he made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness O house of Israel you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ridfam images you made to worship and I will carry you away beyond Babylon 44 our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness he is appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he has seen which our fathers having received it in turn also brought with Joshua in the land possessed by the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob but Solomon built him a house however the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands as the prophet said you realize at this point that's the most blasphemous statement that he made Because as far as they're concerned, the Most High does dwell in the temple made with hands. But what does He do? He proves it with the words of the prophet. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Here we go. Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. You know, that was really a very long introduction to call them out. But he had to. And the reason that he had to is he had to explain to them that just like they were, so are you. They resisted God. They resisted the deliverer of God. And after they were delivered, what did they do? They rejected God and they turned back to what they knew. And here you had God in the flesh standing in front of you. The prophet like Moses that God said he would send. And you killed him. He's kind of laying it on thick. And as you well know, that they were touched to the heart. And they let him go to live a happy life for the rest of his days. He had a nice little goat farm. They were the fainting kind. It was entertaining. Verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, watch this, being full of the Holy Spirit. Why is that crucial? Why did Luke go out of his way to put that in there? Isn't it implied I mean, don't you know that the moment you're born again, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Isn't being full of the Holy Spirit implied? Is it really necessary to say that? But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, God, please get me out of this situation. God, please save me. These people are coming against me. They're persecuting me. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see, here's the thing. What enabled him to do this? When one, obviously he was full of the Holy Spirit. It makes that abundantly clear. But it always goes back to he who promised is faithful. Always goes back to that. And yet we want to take this where we find the very promises that he had. And we want to argue with it. Constantly. We want to argue with what it said. We want to put our denominational filters on and say, okay, well, according to the way I, that I was brought up, that's not accurate. Or we want to put our cultural filters on it. And we say, well, that doesn't line up with what I feel, and so therefore it must be wrong. No, we try. We try. But what if we just took God at His word? What if we just let Him be God? Let Him move. Let Him do. You see, Stephen was empowered by the Holy Spirit. All believers can be the same. In John chapter 20, it's verse 19, it says, In the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace with, be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad. And when they saw the Lord, so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So, in other words, Jesus put us on mission, did he not? Did he not put them on mission? He said, As the Father has sent me, I send you. So it it implies that whatever the Father sent Jesus to do, he's sending us out to do the same thing. Okay? And then, when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If he retains the sin, he retains of any, and they are retained. I've talked about that. But ironically, he tells them, breathes on them, receives the Holy Spirit. It would be implied that they received the Holy Spirit, which is fair. And then in another book, he says that I need you to stay in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. So either Jesus is very confused or we're not talking about the exact same thing. See, the Spirit of God indwells. That should matter to you. You think about that. Instead of going to a place where the presence of God is, the presence of God is with you at all times. What's happening in Asbury is an example, and it seems to be going to other universities as well, is that perhaps for the first time they're encountering the presence of God. God is tangible. We see in, in when they dedicated the temple that the priest couldn't even get in to do their work because the presence of God was so tangible and yet we said okay God here's this box and if you would just kind of fit in this it'd be really nice and we don't have to do that empowered with the Holy Spirit you realize it's not empowered with an it it's the third member of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit he's a person he's indwell he speaks and we should listen and and whatnot but it always comes back to this the person of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised, He gave to them, He gives to us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us as God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now who is writing this? This is Paul writing. He's writing to the church in Corinth and he's telling us that 
we were sealed and it was given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee a guarantee to what it's like it's down payment, if you will. And I hate to use it that way, but it's kind of like that. It's like, hey, there's something greater that's coming, but I'm giving you the Holy Spirit because I didn't just, you're not just born again so you get to go to heaven. There's more to it than that. He's given this to us, this person, just like he said he would in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. It says, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So he continues with that same thought. Paul did not change his mind in a couple chapters span. And where did he get his information? Well, he always got it from God. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Who wrote that one? Oh, it's the same guy. Still Paul. And when you have believed and you believe this gospel of our salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Once again, we see this person of the Holy Spirit mentioned. And this matters because we have to understand him, what he is, what he does, all of this stuff. And we oftentimes don't. We Again, however you were brought up, whatever church association you may have had or lack thereof, that is where you get your information generally. But let's just go back to Scripture. The Holy Spirit was given as a promise and it was a guarantee we are sealed with him. And we know that we are indwelt with him, but we don't know why. And we don't walk as if God is indwelling us. I think it's John 17 where it talks about the Father and me and I and Him and we and you. Like that should mean something. But it often doesn't. In Romans chapter 8 verse 9 it says, But you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. You know there's a big if there. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Where's His Spirit dwelling in it? So is Romans chapter 8 true? I mean, do you believe it? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is in you? Because this seems to be the catalyst. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. That means that He may not. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, He is not His. That's kind of a big deal. There are eternal consequences to this. We want to live in a world where we just assume that, oh, everybody's got it. They're a nice person. They're probably in. They've got to be a Christian. I met one of the friendliest atheists I ever met in my life about four months ago friendly guy if you'd have asked me if this was a blood-bought believer i'd have told you absolutely until we dwelt a little longer in the uh, the old god conversation he's like oh yeah i just don't believe any of that like, oh, you're going to hell i didn't say that to him. i'm hoping to keep the conversation alive but but the thing was it's like man he was so nice he was so nice it has nothing to do with that if christ is in you the body is dead because of sin. The spirit of life is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Not ours, His. He gave it to us. If the spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through His spirit who dwells in you. 
I don't know about y'all, but I could use a little more life in this mortal body. I'd have felt a lot more comfortable doing a backflip off the bleachers and the outcome thereof if I truly believed this. You see, it all comes back to this. Jesus made a guarantee. He said, I'm going to go to the Father, but the Father's going to send this helper. In John chapter 14, we see this, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Now, who said this? This is Jesus saying this, right? Can we take God at his word? Did Jesus ever tell a lie? Did he ever say something and then not do it? No, because he who promised is faithful. It's the same thing that David had no problem stepping up against Goliath because he knew. That Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had no problem standing up to Nebuchadnezzar. Listen, if you throw us in the fire, God will save us. And if you don't, you just know we'll never bow our knee. They weren't scared. They weren't afraid. They weren't begging God to get them out of this situation. I love nothing more than in, in, in Daniel, I forget what chapter, six, seven, one of them, probably six, where the whole lion's did thing and they, they pass it that anybody who prays to their God is going to be thrown in the lion's den. And then David, or Dan, David, Daniel hears about it. Hears that it was signed, so now it's an act of the law. And what was the first thing he did? As was his custom, he went on the rooftop to pray. He didn't panic. He didn't freak out. He also didn't stop. He wasn't moved emotionally because he who promised is faithful. And if he who promised is faithful to that covenant, of which we are in a better covenant based on better promises, how faithful is he to ours? Verse 13, a little while longer and the word will see me no more, but you will see me because I, will live, uh, because I live, you will live also. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So now what is he saying? In other words, if you truly love me, then you'll do what I said. But if you're not doing what I said, then you don't truly love me. In other words, if you truly believe this, then it will affect the way that you act. I keep going back to the parachute. If you believe that jumping out of a plane with a parachute will save you from going down too fast and becoming a puddle of goo, You have no problem jumping out of the airplane. But if you don't have faith in that parachute, you went up with the plane and you're coming down with the plane, baby. So when you trust Him, you believe Him, you love Him, you'll do what He said. That's the marker. You won't argue with what He said. You'll just do it. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Who promised the Holy Spirit? Jesus did. And if that's true, then we should never doubt the 
the Spirit of God indwells us. And we should begin to walk as if that's true. That I and the Father, the Father in me, we in you, the Holy Spirit in us, should affect our lives. It should affect the way we live. It should affect the way we talk. It should affect all things. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, we just give you all glory and honor, Lord. And we thank you that you have set us free from all sin and all bondage, Lord. And we give you all glory and honor, Father. And I just thank you that as we go out, that you will be praised. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.